<laughs> Thank you all. So, passage of scripture that David read for you is in John 11. That's our text for today. So Jesus was on the road to Jerusalem for the last time. And as he was traveling, uh, he knew that this was going to be um, leading up to his death. And he knew why it was coming, and that was the whole reason that he had come. So what was he doing um, as he was walking along the road? Because uh, he knew what was ahead of him, tried to explain it to his disciples, and it just went right over their head. They didn't have a clue what was going on. For all they knew, they were going up like they did each year to the annual uh, sacrifice there at Passover, where all the Jewish men, if at all possible, were required to be there in Jerusalem. So they were on their way up. And it was just a, a regular yearly event that took place and it had been for most of them since they were young. But on his way, Jesus was looking out for others as he always did. He was healing the blind. We know that uh, one of them was in the man that was born blind in John chapter 10, uh, chapter 9. We know that one of them's name was Bartimaeus. And... He stopped in Jericho for a specific reason. As he was walking along, there was this man up on a tree, and um, his name was Zacchaeus. And so Jesus had stopped specifically to bring redemption to this man, who although he was a known uh, sinner, was a man whose heart was longing for God. And Jesus knew that. And he stopped, recognized him, called him by name, went and ate supper with him. Also, it was just before the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday that we'll be celebrating next week that Jesus went to visit the house of his good friends because his good friend Lazarus had died. And even though Lazarus had been buried in the ground for four days, Jesus came and called him by name and he rose from the dead. And this thing wasn't done secretly in a corridor. Um, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. You can actually uh, see it from there. And many of the Jews had come out to, to mourn because of, of the funeral for Lazarus and had stayed for the series of mournings and things that they did in their culture. And they were eyewitnesses of this tremendous miracle. So this is where we pick up the story and the passage that David read for you a while ago. Therefore... Because they had seen this resurrection of a man who had been dead for four days, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Lazarus' sister, and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. That would have been a pretty impressive thing, wouldn't it? That would have gotten anybody's attention. It would get anybody's attention today. And so many of these Jews put their faith in Christ, but as, as normal, some of them went to tell the Pharisees told them what Jesus had done. This sent them into a panic because this is right next door and the Pharisees are afraid of Jesus. Who he is, 
because he's challenging them. He's challenging their position. He's challenging, questioning the religious basis of their life, all the outward things that they were doing. And Jesus is saying, that's not good enough. And that's not going to get you to heaven. And that's what they had been taught, and that's what they had lived all their lives. So they feared him, and they feared his popularity. And so they hastily called together the chief priests and Pharisees, called a meeting of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. This was the civil and religious leadership of their nation, as much as they could have under the Roman occupation. And so these are the religious leaders of the entire country getting together in Jerusalem. And they're concerned about what Jesus is doing. And so they get together and they say, because they've been questioning Jesus, challenging him, uh, opposing him as often as they could. And um, here he was. This man had been dead four days and had risen from the dead. So they said, what are we accomplishing? What are we supposed to do? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and even the Romans. Then the Romans will come, take away both our place and our nation. Well, that's quite a testimony that the Pharisees had concerning Jesus. These are his enemies, the people who hate him, the people who fear him. And yet they themselves are saying, this man, uh, he's performing many miraculous signs. Well, as you read through the Gospels, you find over and over again, the Jews are coming and challenging Jesus because they don't like what he's saying. And they're saying, by what authority are you doing this? Give us some miraculous sign so that we will know you are who you claim to be and by what authority you're doing these things. And Jesus refused to perform on their behalf. And yet, the miracles were happening over and over and over again. Did you hear the latest? What's he doing now? Some guys said, they said he was walking on the water the other day. Uh, they said they was out in the middle of nowhere, out in a desolate countryside, and he fed 5,000 men plus women and children, and there were no stores, there were no wagons of food. He just fed them all. They just started with a, a couple of loaves of bread and a few small fish, and they started breaking them away, and, they, and it never stopped. And it was more than enough. They took up basketfuls left over out of seemingly nothing. He called this, he healed a man that was blind the other day. There was a paralyzed man, 38 years paralyzed, and he touched him and the man walked. Man, what what are you going to do with a guy like that? There was a leper over here. Disease racked body. He touched him and he healed him. And so Pharisees, were present on all of those occasions. And yet they're demanding a sign by what authority because the things that he was saying were challenging who they were. And now they give their own testimony. What are we going to do? Oh, this man is performing many miraculous signs. Isn't that what they asked for? In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, you have the, a, a story in Luke's gospel of the rich man and Lazarus. You all know the story. Um, 
Rich man was very wealthy and powerful. Um, Lazarus was a poor beggar who sat at his door and ate scraps that he threw out for the animals. And uh, Lazarus was covered with sores and all of that. Both men died. And it said uh, in the story, according to Jesus, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. That was another name for paradise or heaven, what we would call heaven. And the rich man, some say his name was Dives, went to hell. And in his torment, he's crying out to God to have mercy. And he's asking Abraham, send Lazarus over to me. And if he could just dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue, because I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham said, can't do it. Um, you had the blessings in life. This man didn't have anything. And um, besides, there's a great gulf, and we can't get from one to the other, even if we wanted to. So the man in his desperation says, look, I've got family back home. They're not believers either. Uh, just send Lazarus back to warn them and prevent them from coming to this place where I am in such great torment. Warn them. And Jesus said, Luke 16, 31, Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So all this clamoring for miraculous signs. You ever notice that when people ask for signs, when they happen, they don't believe them or they don't accept them? They say, well, yeah, that's a nice trick. What else can you do? <laughs> you know, is that kind of deal? Well, here they are. Here's a man named Lazarus. Kind of coincidence. Isn't it? He's been in the ground for four days. They roll back the stone. Jesus calls his name and this man who was dead walks out of that tomb. And so they're saying, they're not questioning the miracle. They're not questioning the power of Jesus. This man is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, then the whole world will go after him. Everyone will be leaving him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So what's the real issue here? What's the real problem that they are looking, that they are so concerned about? John 12, verse 37 says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Because they liked their lifestyle and who they were and what they were doing. The real issue was fear. The fear that their entire way of life was being threatened, and it was. When Jesus comes into our hearts and lives, it's a radical change, isn't it? It changes us from the inside. And if a person is changed from the inside, then everything about them changes in one way or another. Uh, there's influence. To, it's a transformation that takes place. But it's a transformation from the inside out. It's not because of the things that they do that makes them righteous. It's because of who they are because of the relationship with God. So they were being threatened here. Their concern was their authority and position in the Jewish society. Power, position, comfort was all being threatened. They, the reason that they give here in John 11 is that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They had this fear of Rome, so the powerful most powerful country in that whole area of the world. 
Political, economic, military, social, cultural power was in the hands of the Romans. And even under the, uh, the Romans, though, because Herod the Great had helped Octavian when he was fighting to become the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, then they had this privileged position in the Roman Empire. They were monotheists, and they were the one nation that Rome, because of their political help, um, gave them a concession that those people didn't have to sacrifice to the, to the pagan gods. They were afraid that if there was an insurrection here, that they would lose that privilege. And it was that privilege that they had uh, that gave them their status because the authority that they exercised religiously and in the civil government was by the goodwill of the Roman oppressors. It's an occupation force right there in, in Jerusalem. Uh, Pontius Pilate and his group of Roman soldiers that were there. And they were scattered throughout the rest of the country as well. So it was an occupation force that was there, and they were subject to that. They were afraid that they would lose their privileged position because now they had a different emperor. Caesar Augustus had died, and uh, the new guy was his adopted son, Tiberius. And they were afraid that if they rocked the boat here, Tiberius would not as, be as generous as Caesar Augustus. So it was a legitimate fear. There had already been several revolutionary attempts in recent history for them, and the Romans had ruthlessly put those down. And um, within one generation before the birth of Christ, there had been an insurrection that had taken place, and the Romans lined the streets going into and out of Jerusalem with uh, crucified men. And they wouldn't let them take the bodies down. And so to get into or out of Jerusalem, you had to walk down streets that had crucified dead men on both sides of each road going into and out of Jerusalem. The holy city, which meant that you were that close to a dead body, you became ceremonially unclean if you went in or came out. And they left the bodies there till they rotted off. So they were afraid that that kind of thing would come and the Romans would take away their privilege. So they were concerned about that. And if that took place, then they would lose their privileged status, their social standing, the political power, the riches that came with their offices, and the luxury to which they were very much uh, used to. So people will put up with a lot, but if you start messing with their comfort zone, that's a different deal. And they were concerned about their place. What they're talking about is the temple. Herod's temple was a magnificent thing. Um, he had picked up from Zerubbabel, who was the guy who helped build after Solomon's temple had been destroyed and Jerusalem had been desolate for 70 years. They came back and they tried to rebuild, but on a much smaller scale. That was Zerubbabel's temple. Well, Herod, in order to gain favor with his people, um, began a massive, massive... Um, upgrade of the temple and the whole area. They had been working on it in Jesus' day for 46 years, and it was impressive. Uh, people would come for miles and miles just to see this thing. 
It was pretty awesome. They were still building it in Jesus' day. Hadn't quite finished it yet. And um, the thing was that after they had finished it, after the temple was completed, it only was standing for about six years before the Romans came in in 70 A.D. and destroyed the whole thing. So they were concerned that they would lose their position. They were concerned that they would lose their temple. And yet the thing that they feared the most is what happened to them 40 years later. This is the reasons that they were giving for having Jesus executed so that we can maintain our privileged position here and we can maintain our beautiful temple that makes us money and gives us power. And so we'll sacrifice this innocent man so that we can keep our position and our religious symbols. And yet within 40 years, they've lost it all. Sometimes our fears get in our way of walking with the Lord. So meanwhile, this is what they're talking about you know, behind the closed doors of the Sanhedrin. This guy's performing miracles. People are coming. Uh, important people are coming. Lots of people are coming to the Passover service. If they see that, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. So they're afraid. We've got to do something. We have to act. So they're saying, what are we going to do? Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now this man, Caiaphas, was an incredibly powerful man. He was the high priest that year, and um, high priesthood was a thing that, um, that was um, kind of an elected position in those days. And he was like uh, one of a modern-day politician who gets a, gets a hold in his office and he stays there forever. You know, we have some politicians that have held the same Senate seat for 30, 40 years, you know, that kind of deal. Well, Caiaphas was one of these in the religious area. He was the high priest. He was going to actually be the high priest from A.D. 18 to 36, 18 years, which was the longest. It was longer than any other high priest in the first century. So for 18 years, he successfully held on to the most highest religious, be like being the Pope, uh, for their religion. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He was part of the aristocracy. And because he was a powerful, wealthy man, he was also very rude and arrogant. Now he's got the whole council of the Sanhedrin here before him, right? These are all the religious leaders gathered together. And he says, you guys don't know anything at all. <coughs> Let me tell you how it's going to go. Rude. Uh, arrogant and here he is you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish it's an easy solution we just kill this guy and that's the end of it innocent man sacrifices collateral damage you know uh, And so here's this man, out of his pride and arrogance, willing to sacrifice an innocent man in the name of the Lord, you understand, and for religious purposes, so that our temple can be here. John says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together 
and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So Jesus is going to die for the Jewish nation. God is going to have respect for the office of high priest. God set that office up. This man was God's representative. And God would speak prophetically through this very sinful, arrogant, proud man. Because God was wanting the message to come across. Now here's the Jewish leadership saying, um, this man's going to die for the nation. Kind of like John the Baptist at the beginning. Sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John didn't say he takes away all Jewish sin. Takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle John says, Jesus was going to die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, that's the Gentiles, to bring them together and make them one. That is a radical, radical statement for a Jew to be making in the first century. Because the Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they knew best, were their Roman oppressors. Over and over and over again, the New Testament echoing the Old Testament, says Jesus died once for all. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. Hebrews has a lot to say about it. Isaiah talks about it. Many of the Old Testament prophets, the Psalms talk about it. He died for the sins of all. And it says that he died to bring together the scattered children of God and make them one. Wow. He's talking about, in the eyes of God, equality between Jews and Gentiles. Unthinkable. Unthinkable. This anticipates Jesus' prayer in John 17 for the unity and love of the disciples and for all who will be believers through them. It's the basis for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where he talks about Jesus, through his body, um, destroyed the dividing wall that separates Jew and Gentile so that he can make the two of one people. It anticipates Romans chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God is working in us and through us this ministry of reconciliation to bring people back to God. It's the basis for Acts chapter 11 that talks about God trying to get this across to Peter that he is to go to this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And God speaks to him in a vision even though they've been told to go to the whole world. Jesus is dying for all to bring them all together and nobody's going to Gentiles. They're going to Samaritans which is stretching things quite a bit from their viewpoint. But God's telling Peter, I want you to go to this Roman's house. He's a man who's seeking after God. I told him that you were coming. And so Peter goes, and while he's still preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon them just like they did on the Jews on Pentecost. And finally, Peter gets the message. It's the basis for the ministry of Paul. And so the focus is on unity. 
In John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The Gentiles were included. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. Speaking about the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord. God says in Isaiah 49, 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that, they may bring, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 66, the last thing Isaiah wrote Starting with verse 18. I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues. All nations and tongues. And they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. And I will send some to those who survive to the nations. That sign is going to be the cross. I will send some of those who survive to the nations. And he lists several of them there. And he says, And to the distant islands that have not heard my name or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord, they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them... Gentiles, to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. So this is God's plan and purpose all along. Why? Why this unity? Right from the very beginning when God was first forming the nation of Israel, and to this very day, Orthodox Jews will have a little, uh, usually it's brass, if you're rich, silver or gold, little thing stuck on your door. And Orthodox Jews, they'll put their hand on that door every time they go in that door and every time they go out that door. They'll put their hand up there and what they're remembering, that little thing contains a passage of Scripture in Hebrew. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's called the Shema. That's here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And as the people of God, we as the people of God are created in His image and likeness. Did you get that? Individually, you and I are created in the image and likeness of God. Collectively, as the people of God, collectively, we are created in the image and likeness of God. We are all part of one another. This is the basis for um, the scriptures talking about we are the, the temple of the Lord. 
One temple, not many. Um, we are the body of Christ. So if we talk about the body of Christ in Uvalde, how many bodies of Christ are here? One. One. Just one. All the different churches and denominations here were all part of the one body of Christ. Different purpose, different function, different looks, different outreaches. One body of Christ. There is one church in Uvalde. Why? John 10, 30. I and my Father are one. We don't serve many gods. We serve one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In John chapter 17, that's the prayer of Jesus. Just before he went to the garden to be arrested and crucified. Jesus' prayer for us. Uh, the whole prayer is this prayer for unity. I'm just going to read verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. That's his disciples. I pray also for those who, believe, who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what's the basis of our unity? Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 3 through 6. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Listen to what he says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The blood of Christ is the basis of our peace. It's through His blood that we have peace with God and peace with ourselves. It's through His blood that we can have peace with each other. And so we have a unity of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon all His people. And so it's the Spirit of Christ in you, Spirit of Christ in me, that is the basis of our communion and fellowship. It's the basis of our oneness in the Lord. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to all. And we all have a hope of heaven. So we'll be together sooner or later. The prayer of Jesus is that it's sooner. So it's His presence that binds us together and bears witness to us individually and collectively. We are His children. So whatever it is that divides us, Jesus died to make us one. He died to remove the barriers. He died to remove the jealousies, the fears, 
um, the anger, the bitterness. He died to do away with the prejudices. He died to do away with the sin, the self-centeredness that would divide us one from another, the jealousies, petty things that would keep us from one another. Oddly enough, God was speaking through Caiaphas to let us know one man is going to die for us all. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that your love is greater than our sin, greater than all of our fears, our doubts, our prejudices, our jealousies, our pettiness, our selfishness. That you died to bring us to the Father and you sent your spirit to mold us and bind us together. And it's the blood and it's the spirit that unites us as part of your body. Help us, Lord, not to see each other as competitors, but as co-laborers, co-workers. Not as people that we have to compete with, but people that we can share with and encourage and work together on. That the kingdom of God would be built and established in us and through us by your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.